a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Welcome to the Menopause and Cancer podcast, where we speak with cancer patients, survivors, and incredible menopause specialists to help us find solutions to our symptoms and ideas to improve our health. My name is Danny Binnington, and on today's episode, we will explore how you can step into your power, giving you agency in cancer, menopause, and beyond. We are thrilled to welcome back the incredible Dr. Anis Mukherjee. Anis has written The Complete Guide to the Menopause. And our journey here on the podcast began featuring Anis discussing non-hormonal treatment options when we first launched. And we're really eager for her to wrap up this year with us. Dr. Mukherjee is a breast cancer survivor, endocrinologist and menopause expert, and she shares valuable insights and empowers us with the knowledge we need to embrace our own power and agency. Her first-hand experience and expertise really reminds us of our resilience. May this episode serve you as the catalyst for you to step into your strength and approach 2024 with the conviction that you hold the power to significantly impact your own life and well-being. Anis, it's a delight to sit here with you and welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. So you opened our first episode on the podcast when we first launched in June 2021 or two, 2022, I think it was. (laughs) And it is one of our most downloaded episodes. And since then, we've gone out, I think we had 74 or 76 options or non-hormonal ways of navigating menopause after a cancer diagnosis really and so it's been a real learning journey for me and it's lovely to have you back well it's great to be here how have you been well busy (laughs) but um i there's a lot going on in the whole field of women's health and there's a lot of confusion among women at the moment and that's because awareness has risen. So it's it's problem that there's confusion, but it's brilliant that awareness has risen. And I think we're going in the right direction. I think with the awareness skyrocketing, you know, things can get lost in translation. But overall, you know, I, I see lots and lots of positives in women's health. And I've been in this field for you know 25 years, dedicating to to you know the, the sort of things that I talk about, and. Um, I've never seen progress like we've seen in the last couple of years. So it it is good, even if women feel, you know, that they don't know what's going on. We are making progress. Mm. And you're an endocrinologist, a menopause specialist. You have your finger in many pies and you're also a breast cancer survivor. How many years is it for you since you were diagnosed with cancer? Twelve and a half years since I was diagnosed. I was diagnosed on the longest day of the year, which was June the 21st, isn't it? And so we're coming up to the shortest day. I think that's December the 21st. So it's by that on that day, it'll be 12 and a half years. Wow. And a lot has changed in how women navigate menopause after cancer. 12 years ago, women were put on tamoxifen, endocrine treatment, and no one spoke about the effects of this onset of menopause or the symptoms mimicking 
those of the menopause. And now we're caught up and many women are saying, hello, what about me? I'm also in the menopause. Include us into all of these conversations. Do you feel in the medical field, when you go to your conferences, when you write your articles, when you do research, that women with a history of cancer are included in this greater menopause conversation? Increasingly, they are. But as you say, historically, overall, they weren't. So I worked before I developed breast cancer in that particular field. So patients who could access me and my colleagues always got this type of care that we want. But it's a sort of postcode lottery and many women didn't get that support after their cancer diagnosis. And the the the, the, the big change has been survival because you know, 50 years ago, few women survived breast cancer. Thank goodness now, the vast majority are long-term survivors of breast cancer. But with that comes what we call the, the hormone-related effects, the long-term hormone effects, including menopause. So I think there's a really big move to improve care for women. There are loads of very exciting uh, treatments in the pipeline. And I think oncology centers are definitely much more interested in it than they ever were in setting up resources for women, you know, to support menopause after breast cancer, for example, and menopause after any cancer that's estrogen driven. I don't think it's there yet at all, but it's going in the right direction. Mm. And so for everyone that has listened to our podcast for the entire year, so many people have listened every single Wednesday, they've tried to put together their toolkit, we're now coming to the end of the year, it's a really stressful time. Whether people have been diagnosed with cancer this year or several years back, like in your case, so many years back, we have many women who still feel under under supported and don't get any support 10 years after their cancer diagnosis, because doctors just don't know what to do with them or where to put them. And then we add the stresses of this time of the year. And I know you're really passionate about stress. Let's talk a little bit about stress and the impact of stress on all of our symptoms. I have a quick favor to ask to help the show keep growing. Please click the follow button on your podcast player. It really would mean a lot to me. Thank you. Well, I've had an interest in that for a very long time. And I've also seen changes in our environment. When I say environment, the way we live our lives, that has meant that stress has become more and more relentless across the board, across society. Um, in the last 30 years, since I started out uh, as a medical doctor in 1992, after I qualified for medical school. So it's a long time ago and I've seen the changes. 30 years ago, far fewer women were in work there were fewer you know long-term survivors of breast cancer um the treatments for breast cancer have got better but with that obviously chemical menopause surgical and chemo menopause have increased a lot because th there are more treatments that can help women be cured so if you then fast forward to where we are now women are you know having to deal with many life stresses employment having had children younger so that they've often got, uh, you know, looking after young or teenage children when they're going through menopause. They're often looking after elderly relatives. Um, midlife women have got all that going on then. Then menopause arrives. But if you've also got menopause as a consequence of a cancer diagnosis, you've got that major life event to deal with as well. Plus all the side effects of these strong but effective treatments. So we have this, it's like 
it's a it's not a catastrophe, but it can feel like that. It, it can feel absolutely overwhelming because you've got all of these stresses coming together. And so, okay, when the sun's shining outside in the summer and you're about to go on your summer holiday, the stresses seem, it's almost like a stress reliever just having the sunshine and knowing you're getting away for a little bit of a break. At Christmas time, whatever faith, in the UK and, and and many places in the world, there are holidays around that Christmas period and families get together. That can be stressful. You've got to sort out, you know, you're buying gifts, all these things, parties, work is often busier. It's, it's really a, a crunch time for stress. And that's why for a lot of people, mental health hits its absolute rock bottom around the turn of the year, end of December, beginning of January. And I always remember working in a&E over many, many years as a junior doctor. And, you know, even 30 years ago when stresses were different for different people, that's the time when lots of sort of mental health issues surface and cause problems. So it's it's a big deal dealing with Christmas on top of all those other things that I've talked about. Mm. And of course, a lot of the conversations are around declining estrogen levels. So when women are put into surgically onset menopause or when you've, um, you're put on medication, for example, women often focus and say, all of my symptoms are to do because of declining estrogen levels. And whilst that is most likely the case for a lot of people, when stress adds on top of that, it'll make all of our symptoms worse. Because I remember in your fantastic book, The Complete Guide to the Menopause, you wrote a sentence that I've quoted many times and you said chronic stress has a really negative impact even on our bone health. Yeah. And so although we focus very much on maybe declining estrogen levels or very much about lifting weights to keep our bones healthy and our muscles strong, it's also very much we need to look after our stress levels. So 100%. So we know scientifically that chronic stress, I'm not talking about the stress of a car accident or the stress of sudden, something that happens one day, like somebody gives you some, and then it settles. I'm talking about the constant stresses that actually each one on their own might not feel that stressful, but when you add them all together, it, it's too much for our body to cope with. And we know chronic stress scientifically um, has been researched and it's it's known scientifically, scientifically as allostatic load. And we know that, yes, it suppresses healthy hormones, even the healthy hormones produced by our adrenal glands after menopause, because we have lots of hormones produced by the adrenal glands after menopause. And the, so it suppresses hormones, it causes uh, cerebral atrophy, which is thinning of the, 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 the brain, uh, you know, the, the actual size of the brain, it shrinks your brain. It shrinks your bones, it thins your bones, it causes heart disease, it increases the risk of, of high blood pressure, diabetes, it increases the risk of obesity. By the way, it's complex mechanisms. It's very, very harmful. And when it comes to, to menopause and you talk about falling estrogens, the most difficult time actually is the transition that we always talk about, that perimenopause to when the hormone levels subsequently stabilize after full-blown menopause. Because the hormone roller coaster means that actually surging estrogen can cause lots of, you know, negative effects on your well-being, and then the crashing—it's the movement of the hormones that's often really, really problematic. So if you, as you say, if you add stress into that mix, it—it's it, just—it's very, very difficult to unpick what symptoms are being caused by what, and 
you know, if somebody says to you, relax, just do some stress management, it's really, really unhelpful. It's a bit like, you know, when you're exhausted being told, do exercise and eat healthily and then everything will be fine. But women say to me, I'm too tired. I'm too busy. I can't focus on myself. I have too many other people to look after. And so I think we've got a disconnect in how healthcare providers try and explain to women what they need to do because often it's said in a way that just feels totally unachievable. Whereas, as you know, what I say is tiny, tiny changes in relation to even movement in in, in terms of nutrition, in terms of stress management. Okay, they won't you start some tiny changes one day, it's not going to make you feel better the next day. But if you know you're doing the right thing and you can persevere with the options that are going to help, give it a few weeks, a few months, and you'll start to think, I can do more than I was doing before without feeling worse, or Mm. I'm actually starting to feel better. I see that day in, day out with my patients. And just going back to the stresses at, at Christmas, for example, that we're talking about, and you're talking about hormones and how the falling estrogen is is the cause. I see many, many women in my clinics who are treated with HRT, who have tried several different regimens. They've gone on very high doses, very low doses, all sorts of things. They still they they still have all these problems, you know, with stress and with difficult times in the year and other things going on. It's not like we're only talking about stress affecting women who are not on hormone therapy. Stress anyone listening to this who's on HRT will say, yeah, uh, you know, I also have have symptoms and side effects related to stress. Um, so it, it's important to address that whether or not you're taking any hormone treatment. Yeah. And I think a cancer diagnosis brings so much stress with it anyway. And then when I speak to women, what's really causing them a lot of stress is not knowing where to go. What doctor is responsible for them? Some of them might not have seen their oncologist for a long time. They might not be under a surgeon anymore. Their GP doesn't really know what to do with them. The waiting list for an NHS menopause specialist, as we know it, can be over 12 months. And it's really stressful when you think no one's got your back. And that definitely adds to that stress bucket and whatever is in our stress bucket. And then for people saying, just tap yourself into a 10-minute meditation, although I know that can be really helpful because it is really helpful and an integral part of my day, it can just feel like what you're asking me to do one more thing, (laughs) one more thing. It just feels like it's tipping you over the edge. And and I think often, and there is a problem that the health professionals that are, that women have direct access to the practice nurse or the, the, the their own GP often they've got such little time and they do they they don't do it deliberately to be you know they don't want to make life worse for women but sometimes the things they say make women feel worse and not better and I get that I get people saying that to me on on direct messages all the time my GP said, something and it, it makes women feel worse not better so that is not a functioning healthcare delivery system when you go to your doctor and you feel worse but so that we've got a disconnect there and what as you know what I always want to do with the work I do and with with you know what, what I wrote in my book is to ha- try and help women to understand that they can be empowered they just need to know what to do and many women can't meditate many men can't meditate i i know it's beneficial if you can do it but some people really struggle to do that so i talk in my book also about the everyday mindfulness which are things that you that we do every day that we can help with you know trying to just calm down that stress response cuz stress is physical and it links with your 
your brain as well. You can't say stress is all in the mind. You can't say stress is all in the body. It's all linked up. And so what you have to do is, is sort of from the outside, holistically, try and bring those stress hormones down, not to, to make us have no stress, but to make our stress response work better for us. And how do we do that? Give us a few strategies. Yeah. So, I mean, it does go back to several things that we know help regulate that that cortisol response. So our, our stress hormones follow body clocks. So when we're healthy and we're not stressed, cortisol, for example, which is a long-term stress hormone, which is an adrenal hormone, but it's also controlled very much by brain hormones as well, it, it should be very high in the morning and it should be very low at night. And it will rise in the day in response to stresses that we experience through that day in a normal way. You know, a busy meeting, uh, your stress levels go up, then they come down afterwards. When stress is relentless and you're getting all day long feeling stressed, your cortisol level is stuck at a, at a level where it's not high enough when it needs to be responding well, and it's not low enough when we need proper downtime. So one of the things that many women uh, notice and people who are under stress notice in general is that you go to bed wired, your sleep quality is poor, you wake up and you feel like it's the middle of the night and you're totally unrefreshed and you think, I could go back to bed for six hours. And that's because in the morning, your cortisol level isn't high enough. So you don't want to wake up. It wakes, it's a wake hormone. And at night, if it's high, it's not going to help. You know, you're not going to be able to sleep because it's a, it, it's the opposite of, of, of sleep inducing. So one simple thing that people can do is to just try and re-regulate their day-night routine, which will help to re-regulate your body clock. And body clocks are phenomenally important to all healthy hormone uh, rhythms. And, you know, we know that male hormones, female hormones, um, and all the other hormones in the body actually um, follow body clocks. So if you can regulate your cortisol clock by getting up at the same time every day, having some downtime through that day and trying to get your head quieter when it comes to bedtime. After a while, that will be profound. And there is lots of multi-source evidence showing that. So the things that, so I've talked to you about the, the routine, but how do you get your mind calmer at night? Stay away from blue, blue light on screens because that stimulates, um, the content is stressful, that's bad for stress. Also, it suppresses your melatonin, which is a natural sleep hormone. So that's something simple, having downtime, getting rid of your devices for an, a couple of hours, ideally, before you go to bed and doing something that's calming, like reading, whatever that, you know, whatever you would enjoy that isn't stimulating. And then during the day, getting daylight, preferably front loaded during the day, because the daylight impacts our body clocks. So if you're getting bright light at night, it's stimulating. But if you if you get more of your bright light during the day, just by morning walk. And even, you know, on cloudy winter days, if you go out in the morning, it it will give it, it will help with regulating your body clock. And the movement also helps. So moving kind of clears away the cobwebs of festering cortisol. So although you know, it sounds like really simple things that probably don't sound like they would do anything. They're very profound. I'm trying to explain the science because people say, well, that's not going to work. Going for a walk in the morning isn't going to work. That's not scientific. It's actually very scientific. And I think this is so interesting because people believe so very much, if you prescribe me a medication, I personally 
will think, oh my gosh, yeah, that's great. My doctor's given me a medication. It's going to help me with X, Y, or Z. If you told me, make sure you get outside as soon as the kids have left the house, eight o'clock for 20 minutes every morning and stay away, I might believe you less. How weird is that? And I think that sort of sums up maybe the last hundreds of years of how we do medicine, isn't it? Of how we how we heal, how we recover bodies. Um, I believe everything you say because I know you tell me everything that you have studied and that is out there and that you've got plenty of evidence. But I wonder whether people at home feel the same. And also, it's really hard for myself when I'm exhausted in the evening an hour could buy easily and I've been scrolling on my phone and I hate myself for it because I know I've been wasting my time or I just zap around on Netflix and I'm looking for 45 minutes of what to watch. <laughs> and then I'm too tired to start watching the Blimmin show in the first place. Yeah, But it's really changing the habits, isn't it? It is. So our modern healthcare models are all based around medication and that goes back to the pharmaceutical industries over the last, you know, 50 years, I would say, um, very much finding products that cure disease. Um, but the pharmacy, there's no pharmaceutical product that prevents disease. There, there just isn't. Even, you know, even if you look at statins, it will work for some people, but it's not going to work for everybody. So, you know, a, a, a medication that prevents disease has to work for everybody. It can't be harmful for some and beneficial for some. So, you know, there is no pharmaceutical product that works as well as the things that that we need to do ourselves. And and I, I totally hear you when you say women will, because we, we want we want something that is not easy. I don't think anyone really thinks, I just want a quick fix. And But they sort of think, give me something to help me, you know, get going. And medication sounds like it's a good option for that, but it isn't always, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, certainly no medication is really very effective at reducing stress levels directly. If there is, when there is, if we, if I get any of my incredible colleagues that are not on social media who are working on all sorts of amazing stuff, if, if they find out that we can give you something that balances the stress levels, I'll be the first to share it. There's some interesting research that's going on that's looking at medication for sex drive. And or even I, I prescribe testosterone a lot for women who can take it. And I, I'm always quite disappointed. I don't think it's that brilliant for my patients at helping with sex drive. It helps some women, but it certainly doesn't help everyone. And um, there's some incredible researchers that are actually looking at medication that directly relates to the mechanism of libido. And that's really exciting, but that's not available yet. You know, that'll be a while. But there's lots of research going on. And I'd love a medication that I would say is a is a quick you know solution that will help. But I've moved away a bit talking about libido, but to help with energy and well being and stress. But there is no substitute for the lifestyle approaches, which are mm. really effective. And so I, I was trying to strip back on understanding the body clocks because that's very important. Of course, nutrition helps because. During the day, if you're eating a lot of high sugar, you'll have sugar surges and crashes. When you have a sugar crash, you can get very tired. Then you might sleep. Women might be having three-hour naps in the day. That's terrible for body clocks. It reduces your sleep quality at night and your stress hormones end up confused. So that's nutrition has a, a huge part to play, and I know you, you understand that very well. If you can have downtime, which many midlife women don't have, then downtime is really helpful because your cortisol level will start to drop. And if you can do it at the same time every day, that's really, really helpful. Um, and somebody challenged me the other day, I was at a meeting 
about looking at future research in menopause. And I was talking about the fact that not smoking and minimizing or reducing alcohol is really, really important for menopause symptoms and for long-term health. And I was challenged by a patient who said, we're constantly told this. It's so boring. What? Why is it thought to be relevant? And th- th- there's really good mechanisms. I mean, yeah. Smoking increases hot flushes. Smoking um, is bad for every single chronic disease from dementia to bone health. It, it, it you know it, it worsens bone health. It, it, it increases your risk of dementia. It rots your teeth. It, it does all sorts of things. It worsens cardiovascular disease. It causes cancer. And alcohol in excess is a very destructive coping strategy. Again, it reduces your sleep quality. It increases hot flushes. It also increases cancer risk. It can raise your blood pressure. There's lots of scientific explanations for that. I, I feel quite privileged that I understand all the research behind all the recommendations we have. So when I think, right, I'm going to do something like, you know, I don't know, exercise, I know exactly how it's benefiting me. I think some women, they're told to do exercise and they're sort of thinking, what do I do? And, you know, they try and do too much and then they can't persevere with it. And then they feel bad because they haven't persevered with it and give up. And it's just all about making tiny, tiny changes and being kind to yourself. And I think it also comes back what you're doing by saying, get out there, get some sunshine or some daylight, whatever it is, 20 minutes every morning, make sure you end your days without looking at technology. What you're doing is you're saying to us, you have agency over improving how you're feeling. And I wonder whether as a society, we've lost a little bit of that agency that we really feel we can very much be part of our healing and recovery process that we've started to rely a lot more. And especially after a cancer diagnosis, we totally rely on our doctors to fix this, to cure us of the cancer, to treat it, to give us operations, to give us chemotherapy and many other medications. And then suddenly the agency is back to us and we have great agency in changing how we feel, mix it up, not just from stress levels, everything, right? But it takes a little bit of, you really need to start believing that again. And then you'll be consistent, I feel. Yeah, I mean, it's very much about thinking differently. Um, The agency's been lost because over the last, even just the last decade, we've had a paradigm shift in our world with, with media, social media, the internet, you know, finding information and it's confusing. And we've got we've got phones that we look at all day long. We didn't even do that 10 years ago, you know. So th- that's a big change. And so it is about looking at how our bodies work best. And our bodies do are nobody is thriving in this this social media revolution. You know, teenagers are struggling, men and women alike who are not going through menopause or a cancer diagnosis are all struggling with with this toxic world that we're in. So I try and sort of say, look at look at the daylight 20 minutes in the morning as a prescription. Think of it as a prescription because these modern healthcare models, it's like have a prescription and this will fix everything. Think of that daylight. It's like your prescription. You've got a bit, but it's not a tablet. It's 20 minutes outside. Think of, of the getting up at the same time and going to bed at the same time as a prescription. That's your second prescription for managing your stress. Number three, getting rid of the devices and looking at something that is not stressful. Even, you know, what I do, I, do, I mean, it, it is it is online, but I turn all this. I do um, Wordle and Worldsdle and Spelling Bee, which are like little mind puzzles, which take you 
away from modern toxic reality and to stimulating your brain in a way that your that your brain needs for, for longevity for preventing cerebral atrophy and dementia you need to stimulate your brain your brain is a little bit like a muscle and it's being it's being completely deconditioned by stress chronic stress what really works for it, like a little exercise, are brain exercises. So I do lots of those little games, but you can do Sudoku, you can do, you know, crosswords. Um, my husband's doing cryptic crosswords at the moment. I have no idea. They make no sense <laughs> to me. It's really for your brain. My father-in-law, who is nearly 90, he's coming up to 90, and my, my mother-in-law, who's 84, you know, they do cross, they do um, jigsaws, but I mean like incredible jigsaws. Really, and they've always had that lifestyle of getting up at the same time, having healthy food, going outside for fresh air, and they're they're so healthy. I mean, my, my mother-in-law said, "I think, I think, I won't say his name, but she she said, I think his birth certificate might be wrong. He can't be ninety. He's so fit. It's incredible. So you know those things. There is no tablet that can can do that. Yes." There is yeah. a role for medications. There is there are, are roles for hormones. But with some things, if you want to stay well, you have to have that agency and use those sort of lifestyle prescriptions. Yeah. And everybody needs it. Yeah. What else would be in those lifestyle? I like that word, lifestyle prescriptions, because I think if I, in the early days after my cancer diagnosis, when I kept asking my oncologist, I've changed my diet, I said, and I'm doing X, Y, and Z. And I was just sort of, kind of looked at and and she sort of said it doesn't really matter what you eat keep eating that cake and you know that it was 10 years ago but maybe times have changed but I was never really given any agency or if someone had said actually it's really good if you start walking you know or if you start jogging or if you start going to the gym and that will really help your recovery I would have believed it a lot more than I would I always doubted myself whether what I'm doing is right or wrong and what else could be in that prescriptive lifestyle medication toolbox? Well, the, ma the main thing, as I say, keep it simple. So it's not about saying, right, I'm going to go for a jog if you don't like jogging. It's not about going for a swim if you don't like swimming. It's about doing something, even for a few minutes, but it's every day. It's not once a week. It's not once a month. It's not twice a year. It's something that you want to do every day that you enjoy, because if you enjoy it, you'll persevere with it and it will become part of your lifestyle prescription. So, so small, those small changes are really important. So we talked about nutrition. I'm not a nutritionist, but I, I've spent the last 30 years because I've had an interest in diabetes and metabolism, understanding what, you know, the science around it. There's, not, there's lots of new science. There's lots of misinformation about nutrition online as well, especially in relation to cancer. Liz O'Riordan wrote a recent review in Lancet Oncology, which was brilliant, calling out a lot of the nonsense that's written um, on social media that isn't based on science. But from what I would say, and again, I don't want to bamboozle women who are going through a cancer diagnosis and menopause. It's about, I. the first thing to do is about increase your intake of healthy whole food, whole food, which will have lots of fiber and it will have lots of nutrients in as well. And so it's not about restricting and torturing yourself. It's about increasing the good stuff and then hopefully the bad you'll be less attracted to the bad stuff which is the ultra processed foods which we all actually consume and remember there's a couple of things with that stress the stress hormones are there and our ancestors when stress came it was because we were about to enter famine or war so our stress mm. hormones make us hungry so 
if you are stressed, you'll feel hungrier. So as you manage the stress, you'll be, you'll crave those bad foods less. And if you increase whole foods in in your everyday, you know, n- nutrition, then you'll have less peaks and troughs of of you have less sugar surges and crashes. And again, that causes less hunger. So I'm trying to explain the mechanism, but yeah. Whole, real whole food, not something that is in a packet and you don't know what whole food it ever came from or a jar, ideally. So that's very, very important. Um, we've, we've, so sleep hygiene, we've talked about because I talked about that links with the, the day, day and night. Movement is important for bone health. It's important for everything. It's important for everything. So if you are sitting on your phone for 10 minutes, scrolling, as you said, even the busiest person is doing that at the moment because of the way our world is. So just put the phone down, put it on silent mode or do not disturb and go and do 10 minutes of movement, whether it's walking up to the top of your house to tidy up or go, or going outside for some fresh air, that's better. You know, that's really, really important. So lifestyle medicine has six pillars and it's, it's, it's movement, nutrition, um, stress management, which we've talked about, um, avoiding harmful substances, which is the smoking and the alcohol, and also drugs, because a lot of people are taking drugs. It's never talked about. A lot of people are taking drugs, even in midlife. And then the other one, which is really, really important, is real-world social connections. And Mm. we know from the Blue Zones that they live in communities that they have multi-generational connections. So when I say social, I often say real world social networks, but I'm not talking about online, although online networks can be amazing support. But that social connection and that laughter in your life is very Mm. much being lost in modern communities where people have social isolation. Social isolation is hard. And if anybody's listening and they're saying, but I live on my own, I don't have friends because I'm too tired to go out. There are ways that you can develop social connections, even if it is initially online, even if it is with groups. You know, th- th- there's there's menopause cafes, there's all sorts of things, and but it, it you know it doesn't have to. You don't have to be going out every day with with people, but having some connection, whether it be family, friends, it's 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 been proven to reduce stress, to reduce all the different modern chronic diseases. It helps with it, it actually helps with weight especially if you eat wow. with other people. There's good yeah. evidence to show that people who live in communities, which we don't have now, let's face it, we don't have it, but people who live in communities and eat together, it's one of the things why the Mediterranean diet is is supposedly so good. Part of it is just about the fact that they're eating together. Um, so we can't all eat together all the time. And, and I know <laughs> I accept that the real world is difficult, but trying to find your own solution, how am I going to improve my social connections and have some laughter in my life even if it's reading a funny book or and and connect or having a book club or it's different for everyone I can't tell people how to do that but I can tell you that it's important and if you don't understand how important it is you're not going to brainstorm and try and think of solutions yeah. Um, over the last few weeks, we've run quite a few workshops where we had experts talking on different topics and we were all on Zoom and at a couple of the workshops, there were over 50 of us. And at the end, I asked everyone to turn their cameras on because I wanted to see who was there. And it was the most beautiful thing. Everyone had had a cancer diagnosis. Everyone found themselves in the menopause model somehow through different ways. And we were all there trying 
we're all there showing up, really. We're trying to find solutions to our symptoms. We've really felt this community spirit of a very sort of niche little group. And initially, when you embark in these sort of, you know, muddy waters after a cancer diagnosis, you do think you're on your own. You do think, gosh, everyone else seems to be managing better. And I'm here with all of my symptoms. And when you realize that there is a whole army out there, it instantly lifts you up somehow. Even though if your symptoms don't improve, I do feel we all had an improved feeling of well-being. Um, it's a beautiful thing when the right people come together. It is. And and I think that's exactly right. You can, even if you're sitting at home and you have you don't know anyone who lives near you, who you can physically see. Online communities can be incredibly powerful because you're because you no longer feel isolated and you do understand that you're not the only one who's experiencing what you're experiencing. That is very powerful actually in, you know, helping a little bit even with stress, thinking it's not just me. I'm not the only one. And social media, I mean, I'm, I've painted it quite negatively a little bit in, in terms of this, the toxic stress. But, you know, since I've been on social media, which is about four years, I've met the most amazing people online. I've not, a lot of them I've never met. Like, oh, no, I have met you in real life. Have I? I can't remember whether I've met you in real life or not. It feels like I have. But um, but mm. as many I've not even met in real life. And, and that I, you know, I, I get so much joy from connecting with them. And I think mm. we can all do it. We just need to understand, how, you know, where our connections are best going to be formulated for mm. our individual circumstances. You just mentioned lifestyle medicine. Is lifestyle medicine a very recognized thing amongst medics and your colleagues? Or is it one of those things when I kept saying, food is my medicine? Oh my God, I got so bombarded on social media. I don't dare to say it anymore. But I didn't mean that food was ever going to cure me of my cancer. I meant food was so healing for me. I got the first thing where I found it was really helpful is it really helped me with my mouth ulcers, a terrible mouth ulcers through chemotherapy. And I had a book and in the book, it told me to eat certain ways or remove certain things. And it really helped me. And I felt, wow, that was powerful. That was medicine. That was better than my mouth washes that the doctor had given me. Um, but I felt it was very much poo-pooed when I said food was my medicine. And you said lifestyle medicine. What's the deal with that? Like, I love the word, what you explained about it. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. 73% of people who listen to my podcast haven't yet clicked the follow button on their podcast player. I want these conversations to reach as many women as possible who might need it. So if you've ever enjoyed this podcast, please hit the follow button now. Lifestyle medicine is a very established um, specialty in medicine, and it's very respected by all the other specialties. And we have a British Society of Lifestyle Medicine, there's American Society of Lifestyle Medicine, European, international, there's there's lots of different societies. You should join the British Society yeah. of Lifestyle Medicine. I gave a lecture to them this year um, to their national conference, um, which was a face-to-face -face conference, which was great fun because I do so many conferences online these days. Um, and it was a brilliant conference. And you know that they are doing the most state-of-the-art research um, and innovation. It's really, really amazing. And it, it is a thing and it's very well respected. The problem is, again, as I have said, there is a disconnect with what people perceive because if you're told by your doctor, go and do exercise and eat healthy, and you're sitting there thinking, I don't even know how to think about how I do that. 
it's not helpful. But what your doctor is trying to do in a in a bad in an unhelpful way is just say, well, lifestyle does help, but they're not. Yeah. It's, there's a disconnect. They're not explaining how to do that. But there's many programs that are coming through that 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 do are addressing this disconnect, and lots of programs coming into the NHS actually. So. It's it's if you Google, you, you can follow them on their um, social media feeds. But it is an absolutely established field, and the the the, the you know the fact that over however long, certainly my career, the ph- pharmaceutical roots of everything to do with health and disease have been the only roots. And I think now people are starting to channel challenge that a lot more because pharmaceuticals can do so much, but actually. With our modern toxic world, there's no pharmaceutical that's going to cure what we're having to mm. deal with across the board. Not just not just women who have gone through a cancer diagnosis. And I, I've been very lucky because I understand all of this and have understood all of this a long time. And I I don't know how it must be for women who are entering a cancer diagnosis. They're still not getting any support with what's going on in their body in relation to you know, their hormones. And we call it late effects in in sort of medicine. We call it late effects, the, the complications of cancer treatment. And it needs to be better delivered. And lifestyle medicine has a great role there as well. I think that's really exciting, actually, because if we're treated with lots of medication for our cancers and some of the women who are finding themselves in menopause, this is often permanent. Like so many women are so young now finding themselves in early menopause. If we were all empowered with some of the tools that you've just given us, and we were told that they're as effective as some other medications, and these are part of our lifestyle medications, we were sent away with that. That would be an amazing follow-up plan for most cancer survivors, wouldn't it? Yes. And and I'm, I'm, tr- I'm working with um, cancer specialists across the UK on this very topic. The thing is, these strategies are not just good for women who've gone through a, a cancer diagnosis early, although it's almost essential for them to be able to thrive using those strategies. But these strategies are important for men and women, women who are on HRT, ev- everyone, because actually without managing stress, it, you know, we, our, our longevity is going to go down, not up, <laughs> because stress is really, really toxic. And of course, women who can take HRT perhaps might say, well, it helped me sleep a bit, so I managed better to do those strategies. But it's those strategies that we've talked about today that are the key. It's about how you... So if you've had a cancer diagnosis, you need help with... How do you do that when you're exhausted? Yeah. It's gone through yeah. How do I even start it? And it's a bit like... With, we, we, there's something in medicine that we've always used for, since my career started, which is called cardiac rehabilitation. Somebody who's just had a heart attack and they're told that they've got to exercise. How do you exercise after you've had a heart attack if you've got heart failure? But we know it's we know how powerful it is at reducing your risk of further cardiac events and further complications. So we have this thing called cardiac rehabilitation. I mean, rehabilitation is a bit of a weird word, but that's what it's always been called. But in a way, that's, we need cancer rehabilitation. We need to learn, you know, roots. Because remember when you've had a cancer diagnosis, a number of the lifestyle approaches also reduce the risk of recurrence. We know that. Movement, for example. So if only women could see how much agency they have and that actually, even if they can't start going for a jog or a run or suddenly have an immaculate, wonderful diet immediately overnight, of course that's not going to happen but there are ways to get there 
And, you know, it's never too early and it's never too late to start. And it's a long game. It's not about a quick fix overnight for anything in health. Mm. I think the most powerful thing for us to take away from this conversation is we have agency. And I think for me, what really changed was when my mindset changed from I have to do all of these things to you really deserve for you to show up really, really well. I suddenly, some one day it clicked for me and I thought, I really deserve that I make a lot of effort for myself. I put all of my energy into cooking for the kids. But when I realized that actually I really need to cook for myself well, and I deserve that time and effort, I deserve going to Sainsbury's just for me. Why not? I deserve cooking a meal for myself. I deserve the time out during lunchtime. Something really changed. And I think until then, it felt very much like, oh, I felt a bit needy or like I'm taking too much time out of our busy sort of family time just for myself or even going to the gym felt too much. But now it just feels un it's a non-negotiable. And it was more of a mindset, I think. A and then what I could put into practice really showed me that it had an effect. And I really noticed my own agency. It felt like I was outraged for a long time. But when I turned that into a roar, I was like, like that lioness. <laughs> and I continued to show up and really feel sort of my power over what I can do for myself. And, and self-care is something that women think is selfishness. They think, oh, I can't do this for myself because I don't, I want to look after everyone else. What I always say is, if you don't respect your own self-care and allow yourself the agency to do the things that are good for you, that is not helping anyone around you. If you have self-care and you are able to get through your agency the best version of yourself, that's good for everyone around you. So self-care is very important and it's integrally related to exactly what you're talking about. And I mm. say sometimes if I've had a busy week, last week was a very busy week, and I go, poor me. What am I going to yeah. do for me now? Because I've just had a really busy week and no one really knows what I've had to do because it's like so many different things. I was all over the country last week and doing all sorts of lectures and workshops. And then on Friday night, as I was on the train, actually, um, coming home very late, I, was, I just thought, poor, poor me. <laughs> I deserve to have a lovely weekend and <laughs> not have any stress. And and you know that that's a big deal. It, it reduces your stress levels, and it makes you think, right? I'm going to have a lovely day on Saturday, and we deserve it. We all deserve it. Every single one of us. Yeah. And I wonder if we can all feel if we said to our friends and our families, my doctor prescribed for me to do X, Y, and Z, and they're not medications. They are get out there every morning for 20 minutes and they are the self-care toolkits and they're part of that stress relief, whether how that would feel. I wonder whether one day we'll get there maybe that we all um, use that as the language as well. Self-care toolkits. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Anis. I'm feeling very much in my agency, even more so. Um, every time I speak to you, I'm like, right, I can do this. <laughs> Brilliant. That's what we've got. We've got to get, we've got to inject it into everyone. <laughs> Although it's not an injection. <laughs> it's a social prescription. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for today. My pleasure. Every time I speak to Anis, I'm feeling a renewed sense of enthusiasm. And I hope you feel that too. Anis is such a powerhouse of a woman and her real sense that she wants to help so many of us in our community and that real belief that we have much agency over how we're feeling is just wonderful. And hearing that from a very well-respected medical doctor 
is just great, isn't it? Because we truly, truly are powerful human beings. And I want to end this episode with another reading or poem because I share poetry over the podcast and I really enjoy that. And so many of you always ask me, where is it from? How do you end up with all this poetry? And a lot of the yoga comes to me or a lot of the poems comes to me in yoga. Um, we read a lot of them at the end in relaxation. And this is one that came to us at a yoga class we took from my friend's 50th birthday party. And she shared it with me actually just today. And I want to share it with you. She is strong, not because of how much she can lift, but for how she lifts others up when they're at their lowest, not because she's capable of withstanding the storm, but because she'll navigate the storm and then show you how to do the same. Not because she's indestructible, but because after every fall, she will always, always rise. She is strong, not because she chose to be, but because the world demanded her to be. She's walked through hell. Faced battles most will not comprehend, and yet, despite it all, she still chooses to be kind, to be soft at her hands of the world that tried to break her. Her strength comes from within, from learning how to turn pain into power, chaos, into peace, wounds into wisdom. Strong is she, who knows her worth and refuses to settle for less. Strong is she who will not back down, who will fight for what she believes in. Strong is she, who has love wrapped around her heart, courage knitted in her bones and fire running through her veins. She is strong, and with this reading, I want to end an amazing year of being here with you on the Menopause and Cancer podcast. I truly, truly feel very much connected to so many of you. Many of you email us. They're in our, you're in our Facebook community. You message us. You come to our workshops. It's been a truly, truly amazing year. And it is a privilege and an honor to sit here with you every single week. And I can't wait to see what 2024 brings for us all.